You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Good morning, Village. A reading from Romans 6, uh, 1 to 23 verses. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin? so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, we will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of its sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I'm using a human analogy because of the weaknesses, weakness of your flesh, just, for, just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced than from the things you are now ashamed of. The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. Amen. You put it back on there. All right, you can have a seat. 
As we heard just now, uh, we're going through the series of Romans, and it's really like a treasure box, um, maybe like a word box, but a treasure box of deep theological truths. And, and we've been talking about this, but we want to just clearly uh, keep reminding it's not just for the sake of knowing more, because some of us who love information, we're geeking out, we love all these deep ideas, but if it's just about knowing more, um, and it's not leading to other forms of transformation. We have to ask, is that what we're, are we seeing what we're supposed to? Because one of the things about truth is truth is intended to help clarify our identity, like who we are. One of the aspects of learning more hopefully should be a lens that we can understand who we are better and see with more clarity. And as I think about identity, uh, even in our city, um, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. I love seeing this even as our church has grown and, and kids have grown up. But one of the biggest aspects of identity in Baltimore City, and those of you who are new here, this is not going to make much sense. You've got you to gotta stay with me. Is whether you're city or poly. Um, this, this idea of city poly. And if you're not familiar with it, if you're from the city, you, you already know, right? But those are two, uh, Baltimore Polytechnic Institute and City College High. Interesting, because it's called City College, but it's a high school. But it's these two, um, and there's a lot of other wonderful schools. Now, if, if you're a graduate, don't get all mad. Like, don't. it's okay, right? We just talk. But one of the biggest rivalries in the city is poly and city. City, poly. I don't want you to get mad. Like, why are you saying them first? I mean, it, it, it's like it runs deep. It runs deep. And even next week is the big game. Uh, annual football game that's like got a deep, long tradition, like longer than the NFL between City and Poly. Um, and one of the things about it is if you go to either school or if you're uh, associated with it, your identity really becomes it. You start wearing the colors. It's like, I mean, it's almost like a gang in a strange way. You start wearing the colors. You, you know the rituals. You know what it means to be part of that crew. Like, oh, yeah, we don't do it that way. That's a city thing. Or Polly does, oh, yeah. Like, you know what it means to be one of those. Like, your identity in many ways in the city. And it's, it's weird how far-reaching it is in the city. Uh, I've even had people joke when they have people over and they see the other school, someone's wearing something like, oh, you can come in even though you're wearing that shirt. It's like it, it runs deep your identity. And it just helps me to remember, like, so, so much of who we are, it's attached to how we view ourselves, like our identity in different ways. And today, as we, as we heard read in Romans 6, we're taking a deeper look into the significance of knowing who you are. Uh, even more than, like, what school in Baltimore City you are affiliated with, your identity, who you are in Christ because more than which side of the field you're sitting on or, or which colors you're wearing, knowing who you are and, and who you belong to, I would suggest it's the difference between knowing death or life. Like knowing who you are, knowing who you belong to. So let me just pray one more time for us because these are, some, I mean, you just read it, right? Some heavy stuff. Let's, let's ask for the Lord's leading. Lord, thank you for your church. I thank you for these women and men here who make up your church. And we're, we just want to seek you together, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we're reminded as people of community, we're going to learn more about you because of one another and help that right now to even happen in this space. Holy Spirit, guide us, illuminate things that we would not see by ourselves and draw us closer to your presence to be reminded who we belong to, what marks us. All for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. 
So chapter 6, it begins with this, and if you have your Bible, feel free to hold it up to, uh, hold it to, the, to Romans 6. But chapter 6 begins with an honest question that Paul suspects some in his audience might be wondering. Um, should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? He's basically thinking, yo, some of y'all been hearing me go on for like five chapters worth of Bible of how great God's forgiveness is, how much he loves to show grace. You can't earn this. He loves to forgive. He likes to make relationship that's wrong, right? And he forgives your sin. As great as your sin is, that's how much God loves you. And he's, he's smart, right? So he's thinking, all right, there are probably some of these folks thinking, so if God loves to give grace to sinners... Should we sin more then? Because man, that forgiveness sure feels good. When God brings you home, when he's doing that prodigal dad, that father thing, and I'm the prodigal running home, man, that feels so good when I do that. Just sitting in church every week, that doesn't feel good. But when I've been away and I come home and tears are running down, and man, that feels, should I just keep doing that? So that I can experience forgiveness over and over. And Paul obviously vehemently replies, no, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about here. And we see his rationale that he unpacks throughout the chapter. Yo, that's not who you are. That, that's no longer your identity. You're not ruled by these things. Before, for the Christian, um, I would suggest that the most significant aspect of who you are, your identity, is your union with Christ. Your, the, your union with Christ, that is the most significant way to determine who you are. And, and people got a lot of different ways to determine what kind of Christian you are, like uh, who you vote for, uh, what kind of songs you sing. Do you know how to clap in different ways? Like, and some of those are like baloney. Some of them are, there's, there might be some warrant. Um, but fundamentally, we can't lose sight of that, this idea that a, a Christian is someone who's been united with Christ. They're in union with Christ. So the, why I'm saying that is it's not just the activities you participate in, which how is probably for most of us, that's how we determine who we are, right? The things we do. Or it's not just even going on a Sunday, which is good, um, but the very deepest core of who you are is changed from what you used to be. That's what a Christian is. That's what it means to be in union with Christ. Who you are at your very deepest base level is fundamentally flipped and different. And that change then, that absolutely impacts your lifestyle. That impacts how you choose a few hours on a Sunday, for instance. When maybe majority of, of the country is like getting the tailgate ready, you're like sitting in church and singing songs. And because who you are has fundamentally changed and it cannot help but impact the outflow of your life. Your practical choices are important, but the order is significant. That who you are flows into what you do. So we can't lose sight of who we are if we want to be people who are living in the ways we believe God has called us to. And who the Christian is, is one who has been united with Christ. If you're going to remember anything from today, a Christian has been united with Christ. And guys, that changes everything. It changes everything. And today's passage in chapter 6, it describes some of the practical impacts of what it means to have a union with Christ. One is we see that we are dead to sin's rule. Those in union with Christ, you are now dead to sin's rule. 
And Paul, he uses uh, an illustration to, to help explain what it means to be in union with Christ. He talks about baptism. And, you know, there's just so many different views on baptism. And even amongst our church, we've got a lot of different traditions present. But when we look at, um, and this passage is not specifically about baptism, but there's so much that baptism helps to explain what it means to have a union with Christ. Because even the imagery that we're given of when a person getting baptized, they're like descending into the water. It's meant to give us a visual understanding. And for the person getting baptized, they're supposed to feel it. Like you should not be able to, if if the person baptized you, unless they're really cruel, it shouldn't be too long in the water, but it should be long enough. You're like, okay, I can't breathe like this if I stayed down there. Like, because water is meant to symbolize death. Throughout the scriptures, water is this kind of way to be able to embody what it means to experience death. Some of us, water is our recreational activity, and that's cool, but too much water, and you've experienced that. It's scary. That, that's what baptism is. You're, you're being baptized into Christ's death as described here. In verse 6, it says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. It's basically saying when you're being baptized and you're being descended into the water, it's supposed to be this visual imagery that you, as if you died with Christ, that when you're in union with him now, you have also received his death on the cross when you're being baptized. You're dead to sin. And I I just want to make this clear because sometimes, depending on the teaching, we can get confused because we hear these things like, well, now if you're a Christian, you're dead to sin. Sin has no power over you. It doesn't rule over you. And you look at it yourself and you're sitting in uh, in the seats and you like thinking of all the ways you sinned just like in the past like half hour. And then you just sinned again. And you just sinned again. Like you can't, it's like, okay, am I really a Christian or not? Because I... My life is full of sin. I have sin in action, but maybe more in thought, in intent, in motive. Like, good. I mean, maybe, maybe I mean, I've been baptized, but I don't, I, I, am I a Christian? And I, I do want to pause for just a quick second and say, I think it's appropriate to ask whether you're truly in union with Christ. Even some of you, you may have been baptized before, just a physical act in itself, if it's not reflecting what's going on, that you have trusted Jesus, you've died to your sin, you trust that you can't save yourself, all those things. But I'm, through how many, almost 15 years of our church, I've been astounded how many people have been baptized or have um, trusted Jesus in the church who've been in church like their whole life. And like no one, basically no one just, asked, no one ever asked them, have you trusted in Jesus to redeem you? Like they just assume because they, they've been in church their whole life. So I want to put out there, it's appropriate to ask yourself, do I really know Jesus in this way? Do I trust that his sacrifice alone unto Christ has paid the cost for my sin and debt? But what I also want to say, again, that's appropriate, but for, for a lot of us here, you got to hear clearly, it doesn't mean that a Christian is without sin. In case any of you are really nervous right now, because they're like, man, I just sinned walking in the door because I got mad at someone. And um, It doesn't mean, this is not saying a Christian is without sin. 
we still um, bear the marks of a broken world, and we carry some of that. Even the most holy moly of us, like we have sin in our intent, in our thoughts, our actions, and I would suggest that's a part of just living life until one day we, we, it's, we're going to be glorified where there's going to be no more sin. I'm really looking forward to glorification. But now I don't have to wrestle with sin anymore. But maybe it's helpful here what Paul is doing. Think of thinking about sin in the language of power. Thinking about sin as a rule, a reign, a power. And because understanding context and original audience, it can be really helpful for, in studying the scriptures. I encourage that. Because there's a purposeful reason why Paul, he's using termino terminology related to slavery. He keeps talking about slavery and freedom here. And he does it in a lot of his letters, but he's really focusing on that in Romans 6. Because when you, when you understand who he's writing to in Rome, Rome's population in the first century, uh, most scholars say it was about one-third slaves. Like one-third of the population of the city of Rome was made up of slaves. And in, in some areas, they made slaves wear distinctive clothing just so that everyone could know who are slaves so that we'll make sure we treat them correctly, keep an eye on them. And they, they actually took that policy away in Rome because with that many slaves, if you're looking around, you're like, oh, our team's pretty big. <laughs> so they wanted to remove those distinctions just so that the slaves didn't get this idea, oh, we could actually do something. We could like stand up together, like one third of our whole city here. Um, many of the freedmen who are not currently slaves, they used to be slaves. It's likely some estimate that half of the Roman church that Paul was writing to either were or had been enslaved. So the point being, everyone in Rome, those who were receiving this letter, they knew what Paul was talking about when he referenced slavery. They understood the power dynamics involved because one of the fundamental aspects of slavery is it, it's an issue of power. It's who has power. It's subjugating others with power. And, and what Paul is writing here is where a person was once enslaved to the power of sin's rule. Like sin and its power subjugated you, oppressed you, had power and ruled over you. Jesus Christ has now defeated that power through his sacrificial death. That's like what all the chapters that came before were talking about and describing. Sin and its power have now died. And it's why they're called to remember your baptism. It's why we're encouraged, remember your baptism. Because it's not just having a good memory of a nice religious occasion. Oh yeah, I remember when I got baptized. Man, I don't know if they put chlorine in that water or not. It was, it's more than just a religious symbol. It's an active reminder of who you are. That if you were baptized, you, you should continue to go back to that, especially when you're confronted with sin. And remember, oh, I remember what my baptism told me, that I'm dead to sin now. It does not rule over me. It does not have power over me. So again, Christians still sin, but the difference now is that when you are without Christ, and powerless to that sin, now you're free. Now you're free. Whereas before, we would, we, it doesn't mean that you didn't have certain control, but you were powerless to change that aspect of who you are. You were a sinner. That's how you were defined. If we're talking identity, you were a sinner, but now 
because of Christ, as he defeated sin and its power, you can fight. Now you can fight. How? Verse 14 says, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. What Jesus has done is he's taken a far greater power. It's the power of his sacrifice known in grace, and he's conquered the power of sin. You know, God's grace, it's a term that we hear a lot of, um, and we usually think about it as a gift because it's a gift. God's grace is a gift. But guys, it's not just a gift. Grace is also a power. And it's a power for those who are in union with Christ. If you've been united with Christ, you are now availed to the very power of God. Grace says that when you're united with Christ, it's not just you fighting your sin, but Christ with you who fights for you. Amen? Like, where's before? It's all up to you. It's all about all up to you to try to be a good person, try to measure up, try to reach the standards, try to be moral, try to be rule. About, and, and, the, and Paul, unveiled, he unrolled it all right. It was all futile, but now there is one who has conquered the sting of sin, including death, and he's the Christ when you're united with him. Uh, I, my extent of uh, football stopped in high school because I was not very good and I was lazy. That was not a good combination, but um, I remember playing uh, football in high school. I remember my junior year specifically. Oh, actually, no, my sophomore year specifically. Uh, we were playing another school in our area. And again, I wasn't even on the field at that time because I was, I was JV, but you go to all the varsity games. But I remember very distinctly, we had one player in our team, Carlton Aiken. He's actually a reverend now in Philadelphia, which is amazing. But he was like one of the best players in the city. And all I remember, it was the whole game was like, sweep left, sweep right. And him just like touchdown after touchdown. He ran for over 300 yards that game. Like, and he was player of the week. He ended up becoming one of the finalists for players of the year. And here's the thing. I mean, it was all Carlton. But you know who was celebrating that win? This guy. Because <laughs> I was also an Upper Dublin Fighting Cardinal. I was like, yeah, we won. Did you see what we did to them? We ran all over them. I didn't run all over them. <laughs> but that guy who shared the same uniform, whose team I was on, he did the work, and we all got to share in the reward together. That's what it means to be in union with someone who has great power. And union with Christ, it has such deep significance for how we view our transformation. Guys, this is formative stuff. Because I think for so many of us, even if we have good doctrinal training, functionally, we, we live in this way. Like, we believe fully Jesus saved us. Yeah, we weren't up on the cross with Jesus. Like, we get that part. We understand Jesus saved me. But man, now it's kind of up to me to get this whole rest of the guy, uh, rest of this stuff done. I better work hard. Man, I better do my stuff. And, and it's not that we're not called to work and, and engage in disciplines. That's all part of it. But guys, it's not up to you to finish the job. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. It's all his power. Grace is not just for how you become a Christian. It's the very power of Christ that leads you in obedient freedom. We have to understand that. Uh, one way it became like real fresh for me, I, w I remember I was, this is way before even considering pastoral ministry, I, I remember visiting a local seminary 
to talk to someone who someone recommended, hey, go talk to this guy, see if the school is for you. And I remember talking to him, and he was talking about how much being in that school had given him freedom. I was like, cool, I'm taking notes, I'm like studying, should I go to the school? He says, now when I sin, I thank God. I'm like, heart stop. I'm like, you're a fool. What you talking about when you sin, you, you thank God. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm not saying I thank God for the sin. But now, because I understand the grace of God and the cross, every time I sin, I realize that doesn't have the power to condemn me any longer. Every time I sin, it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for me to save me from that sin. And, and I was like, that sounds really weird, but that sounds kind of freeing. You mean you're not living in constant fear of that you're not doing enough? You mean you're not kind of feeling like you're always falling short? You feel like you're disappointing God and others and even yourself? He's like, no. Like my sin doesn't, it doesn't rule over me any longer. Christ does. And that was formative in my transformation to understand that grace covers it all, guys. That even when we sin, what used to have the power to condemn us, to call us out, to push us down, push your face in the mud like a bad bully, now you look at that sin and you can grieve over it. You can repent over it, but in freedom, not trying to earn your good works, but rather thanking God that even that sin, as horrific as it might be, even as it's affected relationships around you, it does not have the power to condemn you. And that's, that's, that's God's grace. That's God's grace. That's the power of Christ over sin's power. Famous old pastor Robert Murray Machane, he said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. Because we're prone to have eyes that focus on what we're doing or we're not doing, and that's appropriate. We should do that. That's I think that's helpful introspection. But for the Christian, we don't pay so much attention to what we're doing or not doing. We're continually lifting our eyes to the cross, continually lifting our eyes to the one who's paid the price when we couldn't. Because that's freedom, guys. That's grace. I love one of Martin Luther's old quotes. Just listen, because the man had a way with words. But Luther wrote, When the devil casts up to us our sin and declares us unworthy of death and hell, we must say, I confess that I am worthy of death and hell. What more have you to say? Well, then you will be lost forever. Not in the least, for I know the one who suffered for me and made satisfaction for my sins, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So long as he shall live, I shall live also. Therefore, treat the devil thus. Spit on him. I like that, right? Like spit on the devil, right? And say, have I sinned? Well, then I have sinned and I'm sorry, but I will not on that account despair for Christ has borne and taken away all my sin. Yes, and the sin of the whole world, if we'll only confess its sin, reform and believe on Christ. And I guess, church, I just want to encourage you guys. And some people, I think they get a little nervous about stuff like this. And that's why Paul was even starting the section with, does this mean we just go crazy? Like we read Luther and we're like, Woo-hoo, it doesn't matter what I do. He's like, no, nah, you don't get it then if that's what you're doing. We, of course we don't sin, but sin does not have the power over you that you've always let it have. And if I would encourage you guys, 
if you're a Christian, if you're in union with Christ, to be able to look at yourself the way God looks at you. And I know, I'm sure, as many of us are in here, you have some of your sins, maybe even habitual, that really disappoint you. That you think, God, he must hate me because of this. Man, I could never put this out in front of a people like church because they would cancel me in a second. This would disqualify me. Again, and I'm not saying we, we be light on those things. Treat it soberly, but treat it correctly. Let the grace of Christ come onto those because God is not disappointed with you. One of the outstanding, unbelievable, amazing aspects of our doctrine of union with Christ is all the stuff we've been talking about, that God looks at you as if he looks at Christ. That's what justification is. And that's why we can stand humbly but confidently in Christ. No one can condemn any longer because we are united with Christ, our champion. So guys, remember your baptism. Remember that sin is no longer your master. Fight. You can now fight against your sin knowing who fights for you. Because when we live out of our union with Christ and we're dead to sin's rule, we're now free to live alive in resurrection power. And that's another thing we see in this passage about union with Christ, that we're alive to resurrection power. Because, and I think this is important because it's been something I want to also be mindful of. We want to be careful that our theology is not merely responsive. What I mean by that is uh, one author, he describes it as corrective theology. Like that the whole totality of what we talk about is always addressing, well, for sinners, here's what you can do. Or if you've fallen, here's how God meets you. And that's, that's important and that's really needed. But um, those in union with Christ, we can also actively live in freedom. We don't just have to respond to when we've sinned and the rich grace that Jesus gives us. But now being in union with Christ also gives us active freedom, not just to remedy the bad, but to actively do good. That's what it means to be knowing the union with Christ. So like Paul addressed at the beginning, it matters how now we live. Look at verse 15 again. What then? Should we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. And, and Paul repeats this idea throughout this passage that the goal is it's not just forgiveness and freedom for its own sake, but we've been redeemed for a purpose. Where, where once we were slaves to unrighteousness, we, we really had no, cho no choice in the matter. As Paul states now in verse 13, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Whereas before we were slaves to sin and unrighteousness, now because of our union with Christ, be slaves to righteousness. And I like how one scholar, N.T. Wright, rather than righteousness, where I think just we, that word gets thrown around so much, he prefers covenant purposes. Like now, because of your union with Christ, you're freed 
to be able to be part of God's covenant purposes, his kingdom moving forward. And I think it's helpful for us to understand true freedom, what true freedom is when we talk about union with Christ. Because I think freedom, and this is words, right? Words can mean a whole bunch of different things depending on who you're talking to, where you're at. Because the way that our our world talks about freedom, I would suggest is actually very different than what the scriptures talk about freedom. Because the world, the way the world talks about freedom is no one can ever tell you what to do in your life. You never have to work for anyone. You don't have to wear anything if you don't want. Heck, go out naked if you want. Be free. Some of us are like, is that a bad thing or a good thing? I'm not sure right now. Yeah. Um, but it's, I would suggest the freedom that the world talks about is kind of a very self-focused freedom, like freedom for yourself to just um, be who you are. Don't let the man keep you down. Um, and, and there might be some benefits to that. But here's the thing. When Christ sets you free in resurrection power, it was always to welcome you to be free to join him in the great work of his kingdom. It was never just for you to be able to be the best you you could be. That's part of it. But it's you to be the best you you could be for the sake of his greater kingdom and for other people. So, and you know, if you're, if you're reading this and if you have some Hebrew background, you couldn't help but um, not think about the slavery in Egypt. You know, when the people of God were held as slaves under the cruel um, slave masters in the land of Egypt for 400 years, and just working day and night to build and to be subjugated and oppressed and and beaten and and abused, and probably in so many more ways than the scriptures describe to us. Generations after generations, kids were born into this never knowing a life other than slavery in Egypt. And people imagining where they were once enslaved under a cruel master, the stories of how God had set his people free. The people were set free by the people of God. But here's the thing. Israel, they were not set free from Egypt. And Moses and Aaron said, all right, now y'all just run away and do whatever you want. You know, you're free. Go, go. I mean, that's not what he did, right? They were freed to go forward together as a people. They were freed so they could finally be the worshiping people of God they were intended to be that they didn't have these cruel masters telling them all these things that turned them away from God, but rather they will be unified together. So guys, remember your baptism. Remember who you are. And one of the greatest gifts that God has blessed us with is the church to help us remember those things. And I know the church gets a real raw deal in our current times, right? It's like, But man, in its ideal form, the church is meant to be here, a radical people of God, to help one another remember the things that are very easily forgettable. It's really easy to forget who you are in Christ when the world has a lot of different messages for you. But who we're meant to be as a people in a lot of different forms, we are continually helping one another. Remember your baptism. Remember who you are, unified with Christ to spur one another to remember when so many different voices tempt us to go back to slavery. And they're not even bad voices. Some of those voices are within our own head. Like we, well, like we even talked about last week, right? The different things, the sin of Adam. Find your primary significance in your relationships, in your marriage or your children or your work. 
Find who you are. Your identity is what you can create with your two hands. It's how big of a house you can build. It's how much you can uh, flourish that bank account. It's, and again, those things are not bad. But I would suggest they're actually an invitation into a kind of slavery that doesn't look like, and it's not to diminish the, the meaning of slavery, but it's enslavement to the ways of Adam. That this is what will give you significance and meaning. But we're dead to that, guys. We're dead to that. Our primary identity is in union with Christ. But if we're not careful, the different voices around us will continue to tempt us, go back to what you knew. Go back to that master. But church, we have to help each other remember we belong to the resurrected Christ. If we do anything as a church, we need to keep reminding one another who you are, who you belong to, who loves you. And and resurrection power means that we can work for his purposes and confidence. It means that we can, as a church, spur one another on to great works and working for things so that more and more people might be able to know who they are in Christ. It might mean that things are not as meaningless as they can sometimes feel. You know, for me, part of the hope of the resurrection, living in resurrection power, I'll just be honest, sometimes being in just any, any place, but even in our city, I think one of the big kind of like heavy um, things that is present is just this hopelessness, kind of like a nihilism. Like, why bother? Why, why do we even try? Why would we clean that block when within a day it's going to be all dirty again? Why, why do we try to improve these schools when it's not going to really make a difference in the big picture? Why do we work hard? Why do we save? Why do we try to raise families? And if we're not careful, this kind of cynical, nihilistic view of life and that nothing really matters. It's like Ecclesiastes in the bad parts, right? It's all meaningless. Why do we even give a rip? None of it makes a difference. And resurrection power is, remember, Christ conquers in the death, at least for me and I hope for you, it gives us hope that it all matters, even when it doesn't seem like it does in the moment. Because I tend to think when we're united with Christ, when we're in union with him, we died with him, but we also live with him. That means we get to live our life through how he saw the world. And I'm imagining, I mean, he was Jesus, son of God, son of man, Messiah, king of kings, all that. But he also lived on this earth. And, he, and as he was faithful on his mission, he experienced some really hard things. He experienced ministry happening and people calling him out as like a wacko. He experienced people betraying him. He experienced people lying about him. He experienced, at the end, people wanting to kill him and put him on a mock trial, sham trial. He experienced hardship. And and I have to imagine that for Jesus, just like us, some of his present circumstances were really hard. Like the things he walked to in the day-to-day, and I know we like to kind of like Hollywood version of it, and Jesus kind of sat in lotus position all the time, except he was praying. He was, you know, and, and, like, and it was just all peaceful, calm on the mountaintops and breaking bread together. And, you know, I, man, I think some of it's just really hard. Some of it's really hard for this God who had known a perfect sense of living to be in a world that was very broken feeling and around people who needed healing like all the time in their minds, their bodies, their relationships. 
Like things were just broken. And even the people he had entrusted closest to him were so broken. These like knuckleheads, like they've been chosen by God to be his ambassadors. And they fighting with each other to say, yo, who, who of us is going to be the most powerful? Like, they, like, like it, it, I think it was hard. Even up until his crucifixion. But what we know in Jesus is that faith kept him moving forward, even through the hard things. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us about it. It says that for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What led Jesus forward in faith when life was hard? It was resurrection hope. It was resurrection power because he knew what was coming. That was better than what he saw even with his eyes. These guys, knowing the future, it affects how you live today. If you know what's coming in the future, it affects how you live today. And I, I think it's just appropriate, even for us as a church. And obviously, I think there's ways to serve in our church, and I want to invite you to do that. If you're not finding, if you don't have a way to serve already, just like we talked about, Danny, find a way. But guys, I'm talking even beyond that in our city. In a nihilistic view of the city, you kind of just want to be here and just ignore what's going around you. Just let me keep my head down and be responsible to what I need to do. I'm not even. But guys, can we step forward in hope and trust and believing, even if we don't fully see the fruit of our labors in our own hands, to trust that what we're doing, it actually does matter. That when we're serving our city, when we're being generous, when we're investing in people younger than us, when we're doing what we can, even if it feels limited, trusting that God is using all of it and it's not a waste it's not going to get thrown into trash but resurrection power gives us hope that god is redeeming it all even if we're not fully aware of it at the time and i want to invite you as you have different opportunities to serve both in our church but outside of our church in the city make use of it but don't do it just to be a good person and that's what good people do but as your way to build in and investing in resurrection hope and power because we help each other remember that we're not slaves, but we're free. As I was thinking about that Exodus story and the slaves being freed through the work of Moses and Darren and others, and we, we learned later on as they went into the desert, God gave them a list of different prescriptions for what the community was supposed to look like. And again, it doesn't seem like freedom. What's freedom? If someone's telling you how to live, God set them free so that they could truly be part of his kingdom purposes. And part of that, he gave them these different commandments, including one really nice one about the Sabbath. That they were required, and most, I mean, not most, some of us, you feel a lot of guilt when it comes to the Sabbath. You're like, oh yeah, I know I should do that. Oh, I've just been on Netflix all day. Does that count as Sabbath? You know, it's, it's like, it feels more stressful. But man, imagine when you were an Egyptian slave and for 400s of years, all you knew was working. All you knew was a cruel master who was trying to suck every ounce of productivity out of you. Their whole goal was to work you till you had nothing left and then find the next person in line. All you knew was work. All you knew was trying to build something for someone else. All you knew was cruel people trying to maximize your productivity. And suddenly you hear this God tell you, hey, take a day to rest. Take a day, not just off, but with me. Because you're not just about what you do. You're not just about what you produce. You're not just about what you build. You're more than that. You're mine. You're mine. Because, guys, may we work as hard as we can. 
And may we be effective in our work and service. But part of being a community, it's also helping one another remember, yeah, guys, let's stir one another on towards greater acts of service, but let's also stir one another on to rest when it's time for that. That we should look at one another and say, hey, you have been really putting your face to the grindstone. I don't know if that's the way you say that word, but you've been working really hard and you're not who you're supposed to be. You need to be able to rest in God knowing that he's in control. He's good. He's got his purposes down and nothing's being wasted. And you can take this day to just be with him. And it's good. Living in resurrection power believing that God and his purposes will not be thwarted even if you take a day to just worship God. Church, we, again, we help one another to remember these things, to live in this resurrection power. So let me ask you to stand with me and I'll ask our music team to come up. And as you stand before God, let me just give you a moment right now. Just, and this is not, we're not doing an altar call or anything like that. You can just stay at your seat, but maybe for internally, you can do it for yourself. But, but guys, can I just ask you, who will you serve? Because this is not about sitting on the fence. You either serve God or you don't. And it doesn't mean you're perfect in it. I, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying, again, we sin. We fall short. That's why we need grace. But you know that you are following God. So church, friends, who will you serve today? Just take a moment for yourself. Who will you serve today? This cruel master who promises you life but gives you death? Or the kind master, the Lord, who gives you life through his own death? I'll give you a spoiler to kind masters better. Choose him today. And God has given us means within the church to express this. I think one obvious way, and this is why these are precious sacraments that are meant to be done in the church, one is baptism. Just like it talked about in there, if you have not been baptized and you want to signify that you are dead to your sin and alive in Christ. And you want, if you've never been baptized, talk to us. We would love to walk through baptism with you. And you publicly declare, I belong to Christ. I'm dead to the ways of this world. And now I belong to a kind master. We have baptism. And we also have the Lord's Supper. We have communion. And weekly, and, and one of my concerns sometimes, we just do this without thinking about it, but guys, every time, this is something God has given us a sacrament to pause and consider who are we choosing to follow? Who is our master? Even if we've been set free, have we been tempted to go back to that cruel master? Oh, remember grace. Remember grace. He loves us. He's with us. And if you're a Christian, I would invite you during this next time, come down one of the aisles, grab one of these, and take it back to your seat. And wait so we can do it together as a community after the first song. If you're a Christian, let it be an opportunity for you to say, yes, today I choose Christ, the good master. But I also want to put out, if you're not a Christian or you're considering these things, maybe today you can receive communion as your sign that says, I choose to follow this good one who gave his life for me to have life and rescue me from enslavement. And if that's you, take communion, but talk to us afterwards. We'd love to talk with you more.
So let me pray for us as we enter this time to sing, to pray, to respond in the Lord's Supper and be reminded who we belong to. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you're with us. Thank you, Lord, that you're for us. And I pray for my friends here, for this church family. Lord, we're not perfect. No church family is, but thank you that you've given us one another to point one another to be reminded who we are. Remember our baptism. Remember our union with you. So right now, as we sing and pray and receive the Lord's Supper, help us to remember those things as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's sing. Um, and again, inv your invitation to come forward and receive the elements. Mm -hmm.